Well, we come to the close of our series this summer on leveraging life. Now, I hope for you that's not like getting kind of to the end of a book that you started with a lot of enthusiasm. I wasn't a reader before I got married. My wife has had an impact on me in that area, and I'm thankful for that. And so I read more now than I used to. And I, so I actually know the excitement of diving into a new book. You know, in those first few chapters, you're just kind of flying through them. And then, you know, you get to some books and about midway through, you're like, nah, this isn't quite what I thought it was going to be. And then by the end, man, you're just, you're just skim reading. Last couple chapters, you're just like, okay, yeah, got it, got it. Because there's, you know, there's those books that taunt you. They sit on the shelf and the bookmark's like 90% through the book and it just sits there staring at you. It's even worse when it's digital. You got one of these things. Because then every time you open the library, it tells you the percentage of the book that you've read. There it just flashes, 95%, you haven't finished. I hope you're not there, and I I, I don't think, given the, the conversations that I've had, that you're there with this series on leveraging life. We finish it up today, but again, the desire is that this would be something that continues to stir in us and really transform us. Not just as individuals, but the culture of our church, of this community, Baraka, that we would think this way, we'd encourage each other in this way, and we'd push each other, we'd spur each other on in this way. This isn't something clever that Justin came up with, or that John Sherwood came up with, or I got infected with while I was in Africa and I came back and now I'm trying to contaminate you with it. This, hopefully you've seen, is right from the word of God. It's truth from his word. So here we are leveraging life. And today we want to talk about the last aspect of that, which is mutual engagement, mutual engagement. And when it's all said and done and when it's all boiled down, what what I what I want for you to see with mutual engagement is that mutual engagement is living the gospel for the gospel. All right. Now, I think in the next slide, there are a couple of books and I want to put these up here just in advance, if you want to keep going in this, let me recommend a couple of books here to you that you can download and hopefully actually finish. And they won't just sit there staring at you, telling you you bought them and you haven't read them at all or uh, that you haven't finished them. But they're two great books, Life on Mission and Life in Community are two books I would encourage you to read that help you with great thoughts on this. Mutual Engagement. Living gospel for the gospel. That's what it boils down to. It's that simple. Living gospel for the gospel. Now, I know that you are in 1 Peter, but I'm going to ask you to flip to Galatians. Galatians chapter 4. I didn't, we didn't read 1 Peter just because I was trying to play a joke on Luke. Now, we're actually going to use that text, but flip to Galatians. Galatians chapter 4. While you're flipping there, One thing that I don't think I have to make an argument for is this, simply this. We all long for community. Do we not? We all long for community. In fact, what's fascinating is that in our day and time where there's cell phones and there's computers, there are so many ways to be in contact with people. Social media, I mean, we're all available all the time, and yet in some way, shape, or form, it's almost like we're more disconnected now than ever. Not only that, I mean, we go home and we want to be alone sitting in our living room. And what do we watch? Reality television. Fake community. Just by a show of hands this morning, who would say, you know what? I've got so much community in my life that if somebody came to me today and said, I'd really like to I'd really like to invest in you. I'd really like to have a a really deep, healthy relationship, friendship with you. Just be like, dude, I'm sorry. I'm maxed out. Can't do it. You know, of all the things I've seen with Twitter and other social media, I've never seen a cap on the amount of friends or followers you can have. Like 50, dude, that is it, man. You are maxing me out. In fact, that's the competition, isn't it? The competition is to see how many friends you can have, how many likes you can get on a picture, how many followers you can get, because we're all starved for community. We all long for relationship and it goes all the way back to the way we were created, right? Genesis 1, 26, 27. In our creation, in the narrative there, what do we have? We have a communal God creating us in his image, right? God said, let 
us make man in our image. We have a communal God creating us in his image. And one of those parts of us that is reflects his image is that we long for community. We long for it. We, we hunger for it. And yet, as we see in that narrative in Genesis, one of the things that is contaminated immediately by the curse of sin is what? Community. Community. And so now we have this longing in our heart for community. That's still there. And it's still normal. And it's right. And we long for it. But what do we do? We search for it in wrong ways. The longing is there and it's good and it's natural. But the execution many times is all wrong. It's like a a young person got a lot of athletic ability. Maybe they're like a, a young man. He wants to be a he wants to be a star quarterback, you know, and he's got a lot of athletic ability. There's a lot of things he's just got and he's got a desire to be a great quarterback. But he's got certain things that he naturally does all wrong. Maybe the way he drops back in the pocket, it's all wrong. He's got to change his footwork. The way he releases the ball, it's all wrong. And if he doesn't listen to the people that come along and try and instruct him, he's just going to fall back into the ruts that are in his life, the habits that he normally has, and he'll never advance. If we don't listen to what Scripture tells us about community, then we'll fall back into our ruts. We'll go back to... We'll go back to our natural way of thinking. And we'll miss out. So, we really have two questions that we want to answer this morning. How do you create true community? And by true community, I mean biblical community. The only true community is biblical community. Okay? There are other forms of community, but true community is biblical community. To me, they're one and the same. Alright? So, how is biblical community or true community created? And then secondly, what does it look like? How is it created and what does it look like? So hopefully by now you're Galatians 4. If not, it's hopeless. I'm sorry. Galatians 4, we're going to start with verse 4. The context is Paul's been talking about the fact that justification comes by faith. We can't keep the law and be justified. Justification comes by faith. And in Galatians 4, starting with verse 4, this is what Paul says. But when the fullness of time had come... God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons, and cause you, and because you are sons of sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Now, we sang about this reality this morning, but this text, and there are others like it, we read the one in in Ephesians this morning as well, are absolutely crucial. You see, at the point of salvation, what the Bible tells us is that there were a lot of things that took place, one of which is we were forgiven of our sins. Praise God, right? We're forgiven of our sins. The second thing that we find out in Scripture is that we were justified. All right, we didn't just need our sins forgiven, but the standard was God's absolute perfection And even though all of our wrong was erased, we still didn't have enough right to get to that standard of perfection. And by God's glorious grace, we're given the righteousness of Christ Jesus. Amen? So those things happen, and those are all kind of legal ideas. They take place kind of in a courtroom setting. But then what happens is that we're not left there. But as one pastor put it this way, he said, God moves us out of the courtroom into the living room. And he says, not only do I want to forgive you, not only do I want to justify you, but I am adopting you as my child. Now that's incredible. That's absolutely incredible. This passage says that God has adopted us and that he has put inside of us the spirit that is in his son. The Holy Spirit is inside of us and is constantly crying out, testifying to the reality that we are children of God. The spirit of God, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ this morning, is screaming out inside of you, Abba, Father, you are a child of God, loved by him. When he looks upon you, he doesn't see your sin. When he looks upon you, he doesn't just see you as justified having the righteousness of Christ. But what scripture tells us is that when God looks upon you, he sees you and loves you with the affections with which he loves his own son. That changes everything. That's mind-blowing. 
I mean, that just blows the mind. We have families in this church that have adopted. And if I had time, I'd go to them and I'd ask them, why did you adopt? I guarantee you not a single one of them said, I I adopted because really I I wanted to see how good of a disciplinarian I was. And I just thought I'd get a child and I'd just kind of whip them into shape. Then they'd make me proud. If you said that, I'm assuming, at an adoption interview, it'd probably be really short. That'd probably be the end of it. What motivates people to adopt? If we had to boil it down to one, one word, it would be what? Love. Love. I don't know you. You don't look like me. I don't care whether your body works just right. I don't care whether your mind works just right. I don't care that you don't look like me. I don't care that you came from another family. I love you. I love you. And God the Father looked at us and He said, I love you. I want you as my child. Why is that so important? That's absolutely so important because we as believers do not work from achievement into acceptance. We work from acceptance into achievement. We do because we're loved. We don't, we don't do so that we can be loved. In John chapter 15, Jesus said this, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. What? What did he say? Abide. Abide in my love. Okay, that's what comes first. Then he says, if you love me, what? You keep my commandments. But you see what comes first? It's not keep my commandments and if you do what I say, I'll love you. If you achieve for me, I'll like you. If you achieve for me, I'll accept you. No, he says, I love you as the Father has loved me. Can you comprehend that this morning, church? Can you imagine the love that the Father has for the Son? And then he turns around and he says, I've loved you in that way. It's done, past tense. I've already chosen to do it. I love you in that way. Abide in that love. Just sit under it. Let it come over you like wave after wave after wave. And just just sit in that. And because I love you, keep my commandments. Keep my commandments. It will help you to abide in my love. It's totally different. It's totally different. It changes everything. We live in a culture that's so focused on what we do and we identify ourselves based on what we do, the sports that we play, the job that we have, and Scripture breaks into all of that and says, no, we don't work from achievement to acceptance. We are accepted by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You will never earn more of God's love. If I do a phenomenal job this morning preaching this message, and by the end all of you are weeping in the aisles, tearing your clothes in repentance, God will not love me more. He loves me right now, as I am. He embraces me in His arms with a love that's so immense and so intense, if it all hit me right now, I'd just be crushed. And the same is true for you now. You're saying, how in the world does this apply to community? It applies to community in every way. Because in a community where people are striving to live from achievement into acceptance, you create competition and pride wins the day. We come into this place and what do we immediately begin doing? We begin sizing each other up. Well, pretty sure I was better than that guy this week. And these people over there, I'm not even going to talk about them. We begin to compare. We begin to compete with one another. Pride enters in and it's the destruct, it's the destroyer of true community. If that doesn't happen and sometimes connected with that, what else will enter in? Idolatry. People make great friends, they make terrible gods. I mean, I love you guys. I really do. You make great friends. You're, yeah, I mean, fantastic friends. You make terrible gods. But that's what we do. If I don't understand that I'm accepted by God the Father, that He loves me and I am working out of that love into what I do, I'm working out of that love into service in this community, then I'm going to either turn to you and compete with you and beat you down so that I look better, or I'm going to turn to you and say, please fill me up, show me that I have value, show me that I belong, and I'm going to exhaust you because you don't have it to give. It only comes from the Father. 
It only comes from Him. We have God as our Heavenly Father this morning. And in that family, it's not one of those distorted, screwed up families where you got to compete for the Father's love. No. No. He embraces us and He says, this morning the reality is, the objective reality is, no matter what you've done this week, no matter what you did or didn't do this week, you are loved by God the Father with all the affection with which God loves His Son. But here's the thing. You're not an only child. I've been around only children before. They're special people. If you're an only child this morning, we do love you. But you are a unique breed. You're not an only child. You can flip back, flip to Ephesians, that that passage that um, Wade read this morning, Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, it's a passage that we know well. Ephesians chapter 1, starting with verse 3. Ephesians 1, starting with verse 3. Focus on the pronouns, okay? Preparing you students headed back to school. We're looking at pronouns here. You can ask the person next to you what a pronoun is. It's been all, I know, it's been all summer. Pronoun? Um Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons, plural, through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has which he has blessed us in the beloved. We read that passage and with our very, very American individualistic minds, what do we hear? God blessed me. He adopted me. That's the way we read it. We change out all the plural pronouns for personal pronouns, singular pronouns, me, my, I, right? But when we read it, what is Paul saying? He didn't say, I'm the Apostle Paul, and because I'm a cut above the rest of you, God adopted me. No, us. We're not only children. In that living room setting with God the Father sitting there, all of that immense love is lavished upon you, yes, and it's also lavished upon your brothers and sisters in Christ. They're right there with you, and He loves them with that same rich, deep affection. You have been adopted into the same family. Jesus put it this way in in, in that illustration that he uses in John 15 that we know so well. What did he tell his disciples? He said, I am the vine. You are the branches. Now, the part of that whole illustration is the fact that if a branch is detached from the vine, what happens? It dies. It can't do anything. It's got to be attached to the vine. How many vines are there? There's one vine and there's one life in that vine. One. Every branch shares what? One life. One life. The life comes from the vine. Every branch shares that life. That means that if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, the life of Christ that's in you is the same life that's in me. Did you catch that? It's not a different life. For some reason in my mind, I like to think like we've all got, Jesus has got a bunch of little lives. You've got one life of Christ in you and they've got one over there and I've got my own. No, we are put into the same vine. There is one life. We share that one life In Christ, we are, as Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verses four through five, he says that we are members of one another. That's the objective reality this morning. The objective reality is that you, if you are a child of God, are not only forgiven and justified, but you have been adopted and you are so supremely loved that your mind cannot even fathom it. The other objective reality is that you are not alone in that. 
But God in His great mercy has called out people from all over the world and He loves them with that same supreme love and you are in the same vine that they are. You share the same life that they do. In fact, in Ephesians, we know as the beginning of Ephesians, Paul lays out all of this truth, this doctrine, it lays the foundation. And then as he transitions in Ephesians 4 from all of that foundation of doctrine into the application of it, this is what he says. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, when I hear that, I think next thing's going to be like, I need to be serious and committed in my quiet time. I need to pray, read my Bible. Look what it immediately runs to. With all humility, verse 2, and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You are adopted into a family. The unity, the community is created. Ultimately, that's the answer to our question. How do you create true community? You don't. The gospel creates true community. The gospel creates true community. You and I are never called. You search it out. See if I'm right. Show me one passage in scripture where the Bible commands us to create unity. That's not even what Paul says here. What does he say? He says, guard it. Guard the unity that was created. How is it created? It's created in the fact that we share this. We are members of the same body. We have the same spirit. We have the same hope, the same calling, the same Lord, the same faith, the same baptism, the same God and Father who is over all and in all and through all. You are objectively united with all other believers, whether you know them or not. You are united in them. We do not create community or unity. It is created by the gospel. Now, the flip side of that is this. If someone comes along and they say, I want to preach the gospel, I believe the gospel, I want to try and live the gospel, and they fail to live in true community, they deny the very gospel that they proclaim. Did you hear what I said? It is not possible to believe the gospel, preach the gospel, and seek to live the gospel and do it outside of true community. The natural outflow of the gospel of Jesus Christ is community. If I understand the love that the Father has for me, and I realize that He has that same intense love for you, and He's put us in the same family, and we have the same hope, and we're on the same mission, then I'm going to love you. And you're going to love me. There's no other way around it. True community is created by the gospel. It's created by the gospel. But here's the thing. This unity, objective reality, is not meant to be something that we only know and never experience. I want you to imagine this. I want you to imagine a couple that gets married. They need to get married because it's important that you get married. Right? You don't want to pretend to be married without actually getting married. People try that, doesn't go well. So you actually want to get married. This is my profound wisdom coming down to you now. You actually want to get married. You want to have the actual ceremony. You want to sign the papers, all that kind of stuff. You want to do those things, right? You need to be objectively, legally married. But how much sense does it make to get objectively married so you can be like, whew, okay, check that off my list, got that done. See, uh, I don't know, like 10 years. Keep up with you on Facebook. Is that why we get married? Is that why we go through the objective experience of getting married? Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying the objective reality isn't important. No, it's, it's crucial. Otherwise, we live a fairy tale. We pretend we're something we're not. We've already seen in Scripture, we're not pretending to be something we're not. This is something the gospel has created. It's a reality whether we live it or not. 
But it's not just meant to be an objective reality. It's meant to be something that we sub- we experience subjectively in our lives. Why do we get married? We get married because the objective reality is important. And then we want to spend the rest of our lives doing what? Experiencing that objective reality. Right? I mean, that's the joy of marriage. You get married... Because the objective reality is important, but then you continue in it because you want to experience the reality of that. The joys of that. I don't just want to stand up there and sign a piece of paper and say I do and then walk away. And in the same way, we don't just want to hear you're in Christ, you're united into a body, there's one vine and branches and that's all great, now go. No, that's not the intention. The intention is that those things would happen and then we would live out experience on a daily basis that objective reality of what's been accomplished through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that leads us into our second question then, what does true community look like? What does true community look like? Now as we think about that, and there are tons of places that we could go with this and there is no way that I can exhaust this for you. Because scripture is full of this. You want to go to the book of Acts, you'll see it there and how the early church forms. And there's another testimony. Right out of the gun as the gospel is launched, what happens? You don't see a bunch of solo individuals living on their own. Individual little snipers for Jesus. What do they do immediately, naturally? They clump together. We could go all over the place with this, but let me just kind of overwhelm you with some passages of Scripture. I don't try and keep up here. Just just listen. Ephesians 4, 17 and 21. But understand what the will of the Lord is. Got people ask that question all the time, right? What's the will of the Lord? In that context, Paul says this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Colossians three sixteen. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. James 5.16, we love to quote the end part of this passage, right? The fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Somehow we tend to skip the beginning part of this passage. Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working, the ESV says. Hebrews ten twenty three through 25, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For we who, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day drawing near. Romans 12, 9 through 12, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be consistent in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. It's overwhelming, isn't it? Really, what you see in those verses is not even a to-do list. What you see is an attitude. It's an intention of my life. I don't know if you noticed, but in some of those that we read, for instance, in Hebrews, it says, let us consider, let us ponder how to stir one another up. Let that be on our mind. Let that be a constant intention for us. Let us think about how we can encourage one another. In Romans, it tells us to love one another with brotherly affection, and to outdo one another in showing honor. That's not just an action that you can complete. That's an attitude with which I'm living life now. That's the way that I view people. Can I just ask you that question this morning? As you walked in the doors this morning, what was your attitude? What was your view? What were you thinking as you came into this place? Were you thinking, God, show me a way to outdo others in showing honor this morning? Find, just point me to someone I can encourage. I want to I stir up my brothers and sisters to good works. 
I want to encourage somebody this morning, Lord. Give me that person that I can encourage. I want to give you a few encouragements and, and we'll have to move through these, but just two encouragements as you think about what this looks like. Ultimately, as we think about living out true community, it shows up in building up and going out. Building up and going out. Two encouragements when we think of building up. Number one, use your spiritual gift or gifts. Use your spiritual gifts. We could go all over the place. We read 1 Peter 4 this morning. We could go to Romans 12. We could go to Ephesians 4. We could go to 1 Corinthians. All over the place. We could read all these passages of Scripture. The truth of the matter is, is that Scripture is clear. At the moment that you put your faith in Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit, and He gave you a spiritual gift or gifts. I'll let you debate that. Whether it's one or multiples or whatever, and which ones are around and which ones aren't, I'll, I'll unleash you to do that. But... You have a spiritual gift and that gift has been given to you to build up the body of Christ. If you look at this community, beloved, and you think in any way we're dysfunctional, one of the reasons is probably because people are not using their gift. The church is not meant to be like a football game where you have 22 extremely fit individuals running around like madmen while a bunch of people who are totally out of shape shoving nachos in their face, drinking beer, scream at them. No, don't do that, bro. What are you doing? It is supposed to be where we all come together knowing that we are all needed and valued and with an attitude of love and service, we show up and we say, how can I serve? If you don't know what your spiritual gift is, let me tell you, the best way to find out is in this community. Do something. Do something. And that spiritual gifting will become apparent probably before you realize it, the community will realize it. And they'll encourage you to it. You've got to use your spiritual gift, and you can't just do it here on Sundays, okay? Uh, And I could say a ton about this, but Sunday gatherings are not sufficient to create true community. You cannot show up on Sunday, leave right after the service, or show up and really go the extra mile and actually stay for Sunday school, and then leave after Sunday school and have true community. It doesn't work that way. There's nowhere in the Bible where in the context of spiritual gifts it says, hey, these are to be enacted on Sunday morning when you gather together on the church campus within those four walls. That's when your gift becomes activated. No, that gift is to be used as our lives intersect all week long. It's to be used. You guys are probably sick of hearing this example, but I'm going to use it again just so that it lodges in your mind. Okay? When we went to to Memphis for the conference... We went to hear guys who've written books, who were using their gift of teaching and preaching, and we were blessed by that. Okay? It was good. But all of us, as we drove away, without even collaborating together, were blessed by a woman who did not know the Eric's, Eric Stalling or me, but who gave herself over to the use of her spiritual gift of hospitality and it absolutely blew us away. I'll confess, when I heard we were staying with someone, I was kind of like, I mean, you know how that can go. We're staying with somebody. Okay, who's the somebody? Right? I mean, there are some people you stay with and about the time you get in the front door, you're kind of feeling like maybe they didn't really want you there. Or you realize you didn't really want to be there. I mean, hotels aren't amazing, but they're kind of consistent. You go into somebody's house, eh, it's all up in the air. You never know. You didn't know what to expect. Justin knew this family. We didn't know them. And right from the beginning, she could have just had us in her home, provided a bed for us. That's all we expected. Right from the beginning, folks, in Memphis, where there is still a statue to a Ku Klux Klan member in an old southern neighborhood, the door opens, this lady throws her arms open, hugs Justin, and does not hesitate and embraces my brother in Christ, Eric Stallings. Doesn't blink. 
And it didn't stop there. It just kept going. In fact, I think the snack bag that she packed for our trip home, his was better than mine. It blew me away. Did it happen on Sunday? No. Not at all. And it was not diminished by the gift of teaching or preaching that happened at that conference. It still lingers in my mind. You need to be using your spiritual gift. You need to be seeking opportunities to use it. As our lives as a community intersect, when you get together to have a meal, to hang out, you need to be thinking about your spiritual gifting and how you can use it when we get together. On Sundays, yes, but also during the week. Second encouragement is just that. Encourage one another. Can we encourage one another? We read those passages of scripture and they talk about this encouragement, stirring one another up. Do you know in order to do that, we've got to be open and honest with each other. We've got to be honest with each other. Can we encourage one another? I think it just give you one possibility here. If someone came to you today in love, not during what we call fellowship time, while you're trying to wolf down some part of a donut, you've got coffee in your hand, they're like, hey, how you doing? What do you know about God? What are they teaching you this week? Not like that. That's not what I'm talking about. But how many of you in here would just be totally offended if someone you know loves you, who has an attitude of service towards you, were to ask you, hey, what are you learning about God? What's he teaching you right now? In your life. I don't see a single hand. Alright now let me ask you this question. How many of you have had that question asked to you recently. By someone in this community. We've got a few hands. Just a few hands. The most encouraging thing about you. As good as you look. And as nice as you are. Is God. That's the best thing you have to offer. That's the greatest thing about you is the grace of God that's in your life. You've got to be sharing that with others. I need to see that. The people around you need to see that. We need to be engaging each other. And there's a simple question in. Hey, can you tell me? Just what what are you excited about? What's God teaching you? Just that simple. Now again, this happens best in relationship. Don't go over to building B, got to get 10 people. What's God teaching? What's God teaching? That's not it. It's in those moments when your lives are already intersecting, you're sitting down to have lunch together, the kids are playing together, and instead of just talking about what's on Pinterest, or what Donald Trump did last week, or what's going to happen in college football, or what's happening in golf, or this or that, you stop and you say, hey, what I really want to know, would you just share with me what's God teaching you? What are you wrestling with right now? And then that prompts other questions. There's a great second question of that, and again it has to be asked in love, what are you doing about it? What, what, what are you doing about it? What's, what's God teaching you? Okay, that's great. Hey, what are, you, what are you doing about that right now? What are you doing? Now, part of the reason we're scared to ask that question is because what's going to happen? They're going to ask us that question. Right? And if we're open and honest and our attitude is that of service towards one another then the question's not intimidating because I can be open and honest and say, you know what, God's not teaching me much of anything because I haven't been in His Word. I'm not there. This is what's going on in my life. And if they know in that moment we're not competing with one another, but I know and am moved by God the Father's great affection for that child of His, then I will move in towards them and I will reach out towards them and I would say, tell me about that. What, what's going on? And immediately we're engaged with one another. Simple questions. What's God teaching you? What are you doing about it? Not doing anything about it? What, maybe we could talk. What, what would it look like if you did something? Maybe we could just pray about it. God will give you wisdom on what to do. Second part of this is that as we engage in true community, it outflows out in our service towards one another, and then it results in an engagement 
and engagement together to reach the lost. If you've got your Bibles, turn to John, John 13. John 13, you know this passage well. John 13, verse 34 and 35. I don't know if you remember, but we started the series here in this section of Scripture, John 13 through 17. It's only fitting that we end here. John 13, 34 through 35, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. True community, the community that should be the natural outflow, the organic outflow of the gospel, is the greatest apologetic for the gospel. True community. That's created by the gospel is the greatest apologetic for the gospel. Your love for the body of Christ and the way you give yourself over in service for the body of Christ will speak louder than any bumper sticker you can put on your car, any t-shirt that you can wear, any argument that you can engage in. Flip over to chapter 17. Chapter 17. Jesus engages in what we call the high priestly prayer. John 17, starting with verse 20. And this isn't the first time this thought comes in, but we'll just pick it up from here. Jesus says, praise, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us, folks. Okay? That they may all be one. Now, just let this hit you like you've never read this before. Just let this sink into you. That they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us. That's his prayer. And then there's what? A so that. Right? So that, this is the reason. I want them to be united. I want them to be as united as, Father, I am with you. That's a union we can't comprehend. That's a union that's been going on in perfect joy and perfect satisfaction for all of eternity past. It's happening in, in present and it will for all of eternity future. And he says, I want them to be one like that. I want them to be in us. And then there's the so that. And what's the so that? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them. That they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me. And they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me. And loved them even as you loved me. The intention of the church, of the community, is not that we be here and we sit here and we, 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 we kind of rally around one another. The purpose of biblical community is not to be safe and secure. To lock the believers on the inside and the, the sinners and heathens on the outside. The focus and the purpose of true community, of biblical community, is that your light, which is Christ in you, would combine with my light. And we would show off the glory of God and our love for one another. And the world would be impacted by that. This community is still here on this earth to reach out, to be on mission. God didn't just call me individually or you individually. He sent us as his body to this task, to mutually engage. You and I together are a greater witness for the gospel than I by myself could ever possibly be. Why? Because I don't have all of the spiritual gifts. And because I can't display the love of God like we can together. We get this idea with this notion of incarnational ministry that somehow I on myself can incarnate all of Christ to someone. It's not possible. 
Scripture tells us that it's the body of Christ that is the full representation of Christ. We need to have and there ought to be unbelievers in our community. There are a lot of things that are wrong about the seeker-sensitive movement that kind of blew up years ago. But one of the things that I think they had right is a desire to draw the lost into biblical community. We don't change what we're doing. We don't say let's change everything so that we can accommodate them. No, they don't need to see more of what the world already offers them. What they need to see is Christ. But if we shut ourselves in and we've got our Christian friends that are over here and then we leave our sinner friends over here, they never intersect. They need to intersect. We need to engage in mission together. You and I together. Walking in together. Incarnating Christ together. So what does that look like? It it, it looks like the next time you plan to have a meal, some of you live near each other, you're in the kind of the same neighborhood, you get together and first of all, you just begin praying together for that community, that neighborhood. You plead with God and you plead with God for the souls of the people in that neighborhood. Then when one of you finds an open door, you both, all of you go in. You don't send the husband in because you don't want to mess up family time because, no, you take the wife, you take the kids. And if you can, you take another family in with you. Now, this isn't like good cop, bad cop kind of thing. It's not like, you know, we just rattle through and it's like a drive by gospel sharing. You know, one person does their bit and the other tries their method and on you. No, that's not it. But just imagine for a moment, those two families, they've been praying, they get together and they find someone in the community, a hurting family, someone who's opened up. Just think for a moment about how much easier it is to accept an invitation over to someone's house when you know they've already invited someone else. You see how different that is? I mean, if somebody kind of comes up to me and we've never been on that level of relationship yet and they're like, why don't you come over for a meal? And I'm like, okay. But if you say, hey, you know what? You know the so-and-sos, yeah, they're coming over. Why don't you just join us? So much easier. So they come over. You're hanging out. You know part of the reason you don't want to have people over because there's those weird, awkward silences. Like, I don't know, you're an engineer, I'm stupid, and we don't know how much to talk about. So when you have more people at the table... You have conversation to engage in. And all of the while, they're seeing the way you're relating to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Instead of sending the children away and treating them like they're they're a pain and get them out of there, they're watching the way you love and serve your children. They're watching the way that the children respond in submission and obedience to their parents sometimes. You're showing genuine care to them. They're watching and seeing community happen. That's what they're seeing. And it has an impact in the lives of people because they're experiencing a tangible manifestation of the love of God long before they've ever accepted it. Long before they've ever said, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross for my sins, was buried and risen again. They're experiencing firsthand a tangible manifestation of God's love. Our lives need to be intersecting. We need to be out there on mission together, reaching out. Seeking out, joining hands in this together. You see, one of the things that I think is true, and I think this came out in the the Vision 2020 survey that was done. We will never have the type of community here at Barak. I'm speaking to us, us that I love. We will never have the type of community that we long for if we do not get on mission together. And I don't say that as individuals. What I'm praying for is that it become part of the culture, the DNA, the fabric of this church. As much as we love, and I thank God that we love the teaching and preaching of the Word of God, and I hope that that never changes. That is part of the DNA of our church, and it is it is awesome. And I praise God for it. But alongside of that, I desire that in that same way that we come together and we exalt in the word of God, we will be inflamed and impassioned for the mission of God. 
and that we would week in and week out, Monday through Sunday, or Sunday through Sunday, or however you want to do it, we would be stirring each other up to good works, to engage in the mission. That it would be a part of who we are. You see, we can all believe the same thing. We could even show up and all dress the same way. It would be scary. But we could try it. We could vote for the same people. We could root for the same teams. We could do everything the same. If we don't have the same goal, before long, the differences will be all that we see. But when we're on mission, a mission that is so much larger than us, a mission that's so much more glorious than us, then what happens? Yeah, we're different. It's true. But it doesn't matter. We've got an objective here. And we're going all out for it. We're united because we're in Christ and because we're inflamed with a passion to leverage our lives, to exhaust our lives for the gospel. Let me close in saying this. I have never met a single person in all of my life who said at the end of their life, I did too much. You know, I tried to live for Jesus and I went too far. I regret what I did. When we were at Crossworld out in Kansas City, there were, there were a lot of retired missionaries there. People that spent 30, 40 years on the mission field. Some of the group of them out in the jungles of Brazil. Not a single one of them with ailing bodies. Many of them kind of, you know, they have that little shuffle going on like this. Not a single one of them. And all we talked about and all the sacrifices they made, not a single one of them said, I regret what I did for the sake of Christ. I wouldn't do it again. I wouldn't leverage my life for the gospel. I wouldn't pour all that in. Not a single one of them. In fact, to God's glory and praise, many of them are still seeking ways. That with what energy they have left and what parts of their body are still kicking, they're going to leverage it for the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for making us, forming us into your body. Now, would you please... For the sake of your glory and for our good in this local community, would you increase in us that passion, that, that, that fervor to go out, to leverage all that we are for the gospel, to be busy about building one another up, using our spiritual gifts, seeking to encourage one another, serving one another, and then that we'd go out. Lord, we long to see people coming to faith in Jesus Christ and being raised up to love him with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. Would you do it, Lord, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.